Like you and I are never the Pharisee. We're always like, yeah, I'm like that tax collector. Like, I can't believe that guy. You and I literally fulfill the words of Jesus. We are all the Pharisee. You're listening to a sermon series titled Jonah, preached at Shoreline Church. For more audio or theological content, please visit thisisshoreline.com. All right, go ahead and grab a seat and uh, let's open our Bibles to Jonah chapter 2. If uh, you're following online, uh, we want to draw your attention to Jonah chapter 2, but also the Bible app. You can follow along in the event today with all the notes, quotes, verses. Jonah chapter 2, I'm going to be reading from the English Standard Version. Jonah chapter 2, then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the floods surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight, yet I shall look, again look upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped around my head at the roots of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love, but I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. Let's pray together. Lord, we're grateful this morning as we turn again to your word that your word has the answers, the ultimate answer, which is Christ, but your word has the answers for every despairing situation that we face under the sun. Everything that we could possibly endure this side of heaven, we thank you that your word has an answer for it. And that is that we're to put our hope in the living God. And so, Lord, this morning we don't turn to psychology, we don't turn to uh, our minds, we don't turn to the world for wisdom, we don't look inward, we don't look outward, we look to your word and your word alone. And we thank you, Holy Spirit, for being our teacher. And this morning we ask that you would illuminate this text to us and make much of Jesus that we would leave with our hearts like those on the road to Emmaus. Our hearts would be burning within us, not so that we're experiencing some emotional thing, but this morning because we've seen Jesus lifted up in, in the word, we leave transformed. So Father, we pray that this text, that this sermon would be glorifying to you, that Jesus would be exalted, and that we as your people would be refreshed and equipped and commissioned out to be your sent ones to the ends of the earth. So we love you, Lord. We thank you so much for the opportunity and the privilege and even the freedom, as many today have those freedoms being questioned and, and challenged. We thank you that we can be here this morning. And we pray for boldness for those pastors around our country and world who are um, cha being challenged and questioning, should I step into the pulpit today? Lord, would you empower them and bless your church today around the world? Thank you, Lord, for this opportunity, and we lift all of this up in the name that matters, the name above every name, the name by which men only are saved, the name of Jesus. So it's in his name we pray, and all God's people together said, amen. Here's a quote for you. He that cannot pray, let him go to sea, and there he will learn. That's a quote from John Trapp. We continue our series this morning through the book of Jonah, and we left off last week with Jonah thrown overboard. And in chapter 1, verse 17, here's what we read on the screen. Jonah 1:17 says, And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Well, now we come to chapter 2, and the prayer of Jonah that we just read comes from there, from inside the fish. And at first glance, this prayer, as we'll study this, we'll read much like the Psalms, and we'll find out why in just a moment. 
But, but based on the study that I've done this week and the commentaries that I've read, you can basically read this prayer or read this psalm in one of two ways. And we'll give you the options on the screen. You can either see this as Jonah is coming to his senses and completely repenting and turning to God in that penitence. Or number two, you could read this and, and surmise that Jonah is kind of acknowledging God, but he's doing so with a superficial uh, spirituality. In, in other words, Jonah's either completely all in and saying, I am wrong, Lord, forgive me, change of heart, or he's approaching God in a very transactional way, not in a transformational way. Now, when we get to chapter four, a little bit of a spoiler alert, we're going to discover that Jonah's attitude and his actions really haven't changed at all, that he's still harboring anger and selfishness and even resentment toward God. And so what we're going to study today uh, is going to show us what it looks like to pray. And so what we pray and how we worship actually reveal a lot about what's happening in our hearts. Charles Spurgeon said it this way, that prayer is the thermometer of grace. So if you want to know if you've experienced the true grace of God, I just want to hear you, you pray. I want to observe how you worship, not just here on Sunday mornings, but throughout your life. I want, to, I want to hear how you pray and observe how you worship. And as we study this prayer, this worship offering, I think you'll find with me that Jonah's prayer shows us the temperature of his heart. Jonah, I believe, still has not fully grasped the depth of the relentless grace of God towards sinners, even sinners like himself. But he's going to learn that God will even reach down to the very dregs of the world, or you could say even into the depths of the ocean, to accomplish his purposes and to show his glory through his undeserved, merciful love. And so this will all make sense as we dive into this chapter, pun intended, right, ouch. Um, we're going to dive in and we're going to see what is happening in the heart of this wayward and now underwater prophet of God. So as we study this chapter, even though I believe uh, Jonah is not really fully repentant, uh, we're still going to see what prayer truly is. And prayer is found in our outline of the text. And you would do well to jot this outline down, or if you have a phone, take a, a quick picture of it. If you're watching online, take a screenshot. Number one, we're going to see in verses one through three, Jonah's desperate condition, where he's at and what he's going through his desperate condition. Secondly, we're going to see in verses 4 through 6, Jonah's honest admission of where he really is. He's going to be honest as he admit, admits where he's at. And then finally, in verses 7 through 10, we're going to see Jonah's spiritual position. So, leaving that on the screen, if we wanted a simplistic definition of prayer, that really could be the simplest and yet com most comprehensive one that we could use. In fact, let's put it in a sentence. We'll go to this next one. That prayer really is an honest admission of our desperate condition as we conclude in prayer, resting in our spiritual position. So if we were to open the scriptures and we were to read the prayers of the Old Testament saints, or we were to read the prayers of the apostles, or we were to read the prayers of Jesus, you see this pattern beginning to emerge. An honest admission of our desperate condition as we come to rest in our spiritual position. So with that in mind, as a kind of definition of prayer, not an exhaustive one, but a simplistic one, let's look at verse one and let's see Jonah's desperate condition. Look at verse one. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God. Notice the intimacy there. And then of course, from the belly of the fish. And here's his prayer. I called out to the Lord out of my distress and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol, I cried, and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the floods surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. All right, so if you're taking note, when we, we think about Jonah's desperate condition, we need to think about the fact that he is reversing the known rules and roles of sushi eating. Okay, he's reversing the rules and the roles. Okay, the fish is now eating the man. This is opposite day. And so we actually asked all of our kids and parents to submit some artistic renditions of the fish. And um, we had two submissions, all right? So 
I want us to display those here for a moment. So can we show? Okay, good. We have both of those. So very good. Um, those are two different artistic renditions. Um, I was going to throw mine in there just to show you how horrible I am at artistry. Um, and that would have been embarrassing. So great job, kids. Very good. Thank you guys for submitting those pictures. Um, some of you may have a future career as artists. Yeah, we can give them a hand. Good job. Thank you. Now, sadly, we often get sidetracked as we study Jonah, and we only focus on the fish, or what some consider to be the whale. Now, I don't want to minimize science in any way. A lot of you know I appreciate science. I was a science teacher. But at the same time, I don't want us to lose sight of the bigger story in this book. Now, some will approach Jonah, obviously, and they will teach erroneously that the book of Jonah is a fable, the book of Jonah is a myth, and it's not historical fact. But as we look at history, we find that Jonah is rooted in history. In fact, in his 1921 work, Nile and the Jordan, there was an archaeologist by the name of Knight. And Knight points out in his work that the seal of Amasis II of Egypt, who reigned 570 to 526 B.C., actually his seal shows a man emerging out of a sea monster, and that man was identified by the Egyptians as Jonah. Uh, so that's rooted in Egyptian history. Not only that, but in the upper Tigris Valley, there was a mound that was referred to by the locals as the, the mound was called the prophet Jonah. It was called Jonah uh, by the locals for centuries. And when they unearthed it in the last two, three hundred years, they found the ancient city of Nineveh. Uh, in this mound that was known as Jonah. And so there's secular evidence that Jonah was a historical man. But, but more than that, more importantly than that, Jesus himself roots the historicity and the reliability of his own resurrection on the sign of the prophet Jonah, who he said was in the earth for three days and three nights. And I'll post later this week, some people get stressed out about the three days, three nights. That was a, a Hebrew idiom. We can kind of um, understand that that represents the sum total of the time that Jesus was in the grave. But Jesus points to the sign of Jonah as proof of his own literal historical resurrection. And so church, the story of Jonah is not a symbol. It is not a myth. The fish is not a metaphor. It was a real creature. Now, scientifically, we apparently come across a few potential problems if you take this text literally. I don't think they're problems, but some people will bring those problems up. First of all, fish don't generally swallow people. That's not something that normally happens. Secondly, people generally can't breathe underwater. Uh, I tested this theory when I was 11. Uh, can't really <laughs> keep our breath very long. Thirdly, stomachs tend to digest what's in them. Uh, and so these seem to be a few problems. Now, these are easy to explain. Uh, just because something generally happens doesn't mean that it isn't possible. So just because fish don't generally swallow people doesn't mean it's not possible. Um, even though cramped and extremely hot, uh, perhaps as hot as 110 degrees Fahrenheit, um, there may have been pockets of sufficient oxygen within the fish for Jonah to breathe. There would have been a lot more of other gases. But if he were in some sort of uh, light comatose state, he still could have breathed. And, and I do believe digestive juices would have uh, wreaked havoc on his skin and his hair. Uh, and we'll learn why that's important in the next few weeks. But, but listen to me, for the skeptic who doesn't believe in miracles anyway, it would be pointless for us to try and convince them because they're not going to believe in the supernatural anyway. And, and so what if this, though, isn't supernatural? What if this has happened in history at other times. Would you believe it then? Probably not, and we certainly don't need a bunch of historical accounts, though there are many, in order to believe what God says is true. Spurgeon said it this way. He said, just let me know that God says something is true. That's enough for me. Amen? When someone ridiculed the poor old woman for believing that the whale swallowed Jonah, she said, dear, if the word of God had said that Jonah swallowed the whale, I would have believed it. And, and so the Bible says it, and that settles it for me. Now, the word for great fish in the Hebrew can refer to any kind of large sea creature. Uh, so because in Jonah's day, they didn't have classifications between mammals and fish, this creature certainly could have been a whale. In fact, I did some research this week. You can see on the screen some different sizes of whales. 
and I, uh, there's kind of a list of them. Now, I don't know if you can see in the bottom right-hand corner, maybe we can circle that. Uh, there's Jonah, okay, in comparison to the size of the whale. Maybe we can zoom in with just the two largest whales, okay, that's the blue whale and the sperm whale. So there's obviously room within these great fish, so to speak. Uh, maybe it was a whale, we're not sure. Uh, there is, of course, the sensational story of Dr. Harry Rimmer, who said he personally met a sailor who had fallen overboard in the English Channel, so in the general area up in the uh, European area, who was swallowed by a whale shark. And I think we have a picture of a whale shark as well. Um, and that was a picture taken even recently of a diver nearby. Um, 48 hours after that incident, um, they thought the man had died, and they killed the whale shark, pulled it on board, cut it open. It had been 48 hours. They found the man alive uh, and greatly uh, unconscious, but he was alive, rushed to the hospital. His hair was missing. He had burns all over his skin, but he eventually started working again on the ship, according to that account. So it's certainly possible, but let's not miss the bigger story in the book of Jonah. In fact, Thomas John Carlyle says this, I was so obsessed with what was going on inside the whale that I missed seeing the drama inside Jonah. Okay, think of what it would have been like for Jonah waking up inside the belly of this great fish. One person said it this way, kind of describing it. He said, as Jonah regained consciousness, imagine the horror of his first sensations, the feel of the stomach lining of the fish pressing about him, irritation of the acidic stomach juices of the fish beginning to bleach his skin, the foul smell of the place. You think of the outside of the fish smells bad. Imagine the inside of the fish the passing through of the normal diet of the fish, the darkness of this place. In time, Jonah must have realized that this fish was not the means of his destruction, but the means of his deliverance. We talked a lot about that last week. If you missed the sermon last week, go back and watch or listen to that. Now, I have prayed in some unique places. I have prayed in some very awkward and interesting prayer closets, but this has to be the strangest in all of human history. This is the most obscure war room that has ever existed in the world. <laughs> so if Jonah would have read and known the Hebrew scriptures, he would have, he would have understood the Psalms written prior, many of them written prior to Jonah's experience. And so when we read his prayer, much of it is going to sound like a variety of different Psalms. We just read verses one through three, but look how similar verses 1 through 3 are to Psalm 18, 4 through 6, a psalm of David. On the screen, it says, The cords of death encompassed me. The torrents of destruction assailed me. The cords of Sheol entangled me. The snares of death confronted me. In my distress, I called upon the Lord. To my God, I cried for help. And from his temple, he heard my voice, and my cry to him reached his ears. So as you read this prayer you get different glimpses of different psalms. So I'll just jot them down real quick. Uh, you get a glimpse of Psalm 3. You get a glimpse of Psalm 5. There, of course, is Psalm 18. You pick up on Psalm 30 and Psalm 42, which we referenced in our time of worship and singing. There's a reference to Psalm 69, Psalm 120, and even Psalm 139. So Jonah is acknowledging his despair and his desperate condition before God in the fish. See, not only is he in the fish, he's also in despair. In his prayer, Jonah believes he's near death. He uses the phrase Sheol. Notice that he says in verse 2, out of the belly of Sheol. That's not the name of the fish, by the way. Uh, that is a reference to what um, scholars would point out. Uh, in Scripture, Sheol can mean grave, it can mean afterlife, it can mean many more things. And so some scholars believe he said that because he actually died and then he came back to life. Um, but um, I believe, actually, he's just being poetic. So he's saying, I, I was near death. I was in the pit. I was as good as dead. Uh, I was given a diagnosis of certain death. And, and so Jonah's not only in despair, he's also in utter darkness. He's in complete silence. Notice in verse 3, Jonah says, You cast me into the deep. The flood and the waves surrounded me. They passed over me. He's completely isolated. He's completely in darkness. It's completely quiet. Some of us can't go to sleep at night without the fan running or white noise because we don't want to be alone with our thoughts. And it's disturbing to us to have absolute quiet, absolute silence. 
And there's Jonah in the dark, in the deep, in the quiet. And in that place, he cries out to the Lord. Remember, he's been running from the presence of the Lord. And now because of his plight, he finds himself turning to acknowledge and cry out and seek after God's presence. And he rightly points out in verse 3 that God is the one who cast him into the deep. It was God's waves and God's breakers who were sweeping over him. It wasn't the pagan mariners on the Phoenician ship bound for Tarshish that cast him into the deep. It was God. God was orchestrating all of this for his own glory and for Jonah's good. Now notice the second section. Jonah was in a desperate condition. Now let's notice his honest admission. Verse 4, Then I said, I am driven away from your sight, yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. Now, thankfully, in confession, Jonah acknowledges, he admits where he's at. He says, I am driven away from God's sight, but I will again look upon your holy temple. Now, to Jonah, God's holy temple represented the very presence of God, the very um, you know, excellence of God as he met with his people. And remember, Jonah's been running away from that. He's turned and gone the opposite direction from the temple of God. And so essentially, he's gotten what he's wanted. Right? He's been wanting to be separated from the will of God, the plan of God, the person of God, the presence of God, and he's gotten what he's wanted. And in effect, that's what happens in our sin and our depravity. I want what I want. I want to rebel against the Most High. I want to take that pleasurable thing and live it up. And what we do is we find ourselves getting what we wanted and yet not ultimately getting what we truly want. And so he has been running from God. Now he's separated from God. And now he gets the result of his sin. Broken fellowship. Disturbed shalom. Interrupted intimacy. And so he admits that I have driven myself away from the presence of God because of my rebellion. And that, church, that's what sin does. It drives us away from fellowship with God. It, it separates us from Him. It divides us, and it eventually destroys us. And so in prayer, Jonah comes to, term with, uh, to terms with the fact that he's been ignoring God. He's been resisting the will of God. But here, he confesses this, and, and he says, this is where I've been yet I will look again on your holy temple. So he's reaffirming his promise to seek after the person and the command of God. Now, I think that Jonah gets a few things theologically wrong here. Uh, First, he may have felt driven away, but that's not ultimately true. Uh, Jesus said this in John 6, 37. Jesus said, All those that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never drive away. So, Thankfully, in Christ, we have that promise. Now, Jonah may have been cast into the deep, but he was not cast out of God's hand. He may have felt that way, but our feelings lie. Notice what else he gets wrong. Verse 5, he says, The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped about my head at the roots of the mountains. It's getting a little specific here. Now, again, he may have felt that the waters were closing in on him to kill him, but these were the means of God disciplining and redirecting him, not to kill him. So he was like, oh, the the water's here to kill me. No, the water was there to redirect you, Jonah. Now, we can't always trust our feelings when trials come upon us. As we learned last week, what we think is God's means of destruction is often his means of discipline. Um, Look what else he gets wrong. He says, I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord, my God. Again, the bars did not close upon him forever. But he did pick up on something, didn't he? He picked up on the fact that unless God intervened, Jonah would have certainly perished. And so he acknowledges that God rescued him, that God brought up his life from the pit. So perhaps Jonah's profession of being a person who fears God, maybe that is starting to take shape in his heart. Jonah's saying, I was as good as dead. But in the the deepest, in the darkest, in the most isolated and sinful place, God heard his cry. Listen, sinner, it doesn't matter how far you've fallen or how close to hell you think you are. There's no pit that's too deep that God cannot hear you cry out to him. There's no sin so great that it didn't cost the dear life of his son. And this morning, you can keep resisting the will and the wooing of a gracious and compassionate God, but in his mercy, He's keeping, he keeps drawing you. 
He's still working to confess your sin, to uh, have you see your desperate condition, and for you to honestly admit this morning that you need his intervention, that you're helpless this morning apart from his salvific work on your behalf. So no matter what condition we find ourselves in this morning or in life, God is mighty to save. Amen? No matter how desperate you are today, relentless grace can even find you. And that should bring great hope for the person who says, I am the farthest person away that you could ever imagine. There's no way that a loving God would have any mercy on me. God reaches down into the depths of a man who is called by his name who ran from him and even in the depths of the ocean uh, calls him out. And so Jonah is honest in his admission. Now, let's look at our third section as Jonah's reminded of his spiritual position. Look at verse 7. He says, when my life was fainting away, this is almost like a callback to the prayer, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. He didn't have to be in the proximity of the temple, uh, but the prayer of Jonah came into uh, the presence of God. Those who, verse 8, pay regard to vain idols, forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to Yahweh, or to Jehovah. And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. So just picture with me, as Jonah's head is wrapped in seaweed, inside the intensely hot and putrid stomach of this great fish, maybe fading in and out of consciousness, we're not really sure, he, in that moment, cries out to the Lord. And he remembers the Lord. And thus, Jonah remembers who he is. Who am I? I'm a part of Israel. I'm a part of the covenant people of God who have been shown the merciful salvation of Yahweh. There is no other God, there is no vain idol who can hear and who can respond. No other power whom Jonah could cry out to that would save. And so Jonah's coming to terms with how God works on behalf of his people and that he is indeed the God who saves. But see, I think something's missing from Jonah's identity here. Something greatly missing. Remember, Jonah is supposed to represent God to the nations, to the pagan peoples. He is a spokesperson for God. Thus, the actions that he has, as many of God's prophets uh, had throughout the Old Testament, he's supposed to represent God even in some of the actions, some of the obscure actions or activity that he does. That's a picture of God's faithful covenantal love to his people. But here he's been misrepresenting God. I'm supposed to go to those people and he runs the opposite direction. And so in many ways, though, he's misrepresenting God. Listen, in a significant way, he's actually rightly representing Israel. Let me show you this. John MacArthur says this. He says, Jonah was a kind of a microcosm of the whole national failure. Jonah was like a living symptom of national disgrace. The Jews, the people of God, were placed in the world as a witness nation. They were to declare to the world the one true and living God. They were to take the message of the one true and living God to the polytheistic, polydemonistic world. They were to be a light to the Gentiles. They were the chosen people, not as an end, but as a means to an end. He goes on, he says, they were to be a nation of missionaries. They were to be zealous for other nations to love and worship the true God. And they were to give corporate testimony of the greatness and the goodness and the power and the mercy of their God as demonstrated in their lives and declare their God to be the true God to the world and invite the world to come to know the true and living God. That was what Israel was called to do. But he says, instead, they became racist and full of hate and animosity and that's why God allowed at a later time the Assyrians to come and obliterate the northern kingdom for good. Wow. Jonah, his understanding of who he was spiritually should have shaped his activity and his attitude towards the Ninevites. Hey, I'm a Hebrew, and I'm called to enjoy God's grace and extend his glory to the nations. But as we'll see in the coming weeks, he's just still unrepentant. And he's harboring this racism towards the Gentiles and specifically to the Assyrians. Remember, Israel had enjoyed being the recipients of God's grace and favor and his covenantal love. But as a people, she, Israel, refused to extend his glory and kindness to the nations. 
any nations beyond her borders. And Israel had been blessed to then be a blessing, but this was not fully realized until the coming of the Messiah. I'm going to bless you to be a blessing to all nations. We know Jesus, who came through Jewish lineage, would bless all peoples by making peace with God through the shedding of his blood on the cross. And so Jonah disrupts that picture. He distorts this picture of God being just and merciful. And now, ironically, isn't it? Jonah himself experiences the grace of God in the most unimaginable place. The most unimaginable place to experience the grace of God would have been Nineveh. And here, Jonah himself begins to be a recipient of God's relentless grace. One of the greatest things that we can learn in prayer as we humbly admit our desperate condition before God is to come to terms with who we are in Christ. To land on or rest in the fact that we have a spiritual position in Christ. Jesus said when we pray, we're to pray our Father. In other words, every believer in Jesus Christ is united together into a spiritual family where we don't have to go through any special man mediator, but through one man, the man Christ Jesus, who says this is how you should pray. Pray to our Father. He's my Father. He's your Father. And this Heavenly Father intimately knows us and longs not only to meet our needs, but just simply to meet with us in prayer. And so when we look at this, we ask, was Jonah a changed man? Well, the verdict is still out, and we're going to see what happens as the story continues to progress. And so next week, we'll dive in a little, well, I keep saying dive in. We'll look next week at chapter 3 as we um, continue to see uh, how the story plays out. But I've got another pun for you, okay? We're going to see something fishy about Jonah's prayer, all right? (laughs) No? Nobody? Okay. Jonah's prayer to me is a picture of superficial spirituality. When you begin really investigating this chapter, you realize, wait a minute, I've heard some psalm prayers and some psalm praise, and this seems a little bit similar, but there's something different here. And when we dive in, we re- when we dig into this, we realize that this prayer isn't actually centered on God. It's centered on Jonah. So, could this be a sobering indictment of what our prayer lives look like? When we have a name that we follow after God, and yet we have a heart that's wayward? Could this be a description of what our worship looks like when it's not about God, but it's about us? If our generation, meaning everyone alive on the planet today, if we as a generation could write a psalm, it might look a lot like Jonah's psalm, where it's not ultimately about God, it's about us. And and I want to show you this. Um, I want to show you, as we apply this, five aspects to this. So if you're taking notes, please jot these down. Five aspects to what I call man-centered worship or man-centered prayer. Number one, when we read this, we realize that man-centered worship or man-centered prayer turns to God in distress instead of daily. Now, note with me that it took the darkness of the depths to cause Jonah to finally surrender to God. And this was birthed out of desperation, not out of delight. Oswald Chambers said we tend to use prayer as a last resort, but God wants it to be our first line of defense. We pray when there's nothing else we can do, but God wants us to pray before we do anything at all. I know often people will turn to God in a moment of crisis, though they've not made prayer a normative practice to start the day, maybe the first thing that you do before you talk to anyone on the planet, you wake up, you come to consciousness, and you thank God and you worship and you just begin to pray and acknowledge and thank him. So when the world has a catastrophe, we offer prayers and thoughts or thoughts and prayers. And and really, that's just kind of a term now. We're not actually thinking of them or praying for them. We might post a picture like we stand with or something strong, hashtag, when there's a national crisis. But largely, we stay off of our knees and largely unaffected until there's a catastrophe that strikes us. Then we'll bend the knee. Uh, You guys remember the Sunday after 9-11 was perhaps the highest spike in church history, um, or American history at least, where church attendance spiked from one week to the next. And rightly so. It was a very scary, very confusing time. 
and, and when presented with the reality of terrorism or uncertainty or fear, confusion, people thankfully will, will cry out to God. What do we do? We turn to the living God. But, but then things settle down and we lose interest in spiritual things and we get back to our comfortable lives. So one aspect of man-centered prayer and worship is that it turns to God only when there's a time of distress instead of daily. Number two, these get worse, don't worry. Uh, number two, man-centered worship or prayer tends to emphasize our calamity rather than God's character. Now notice how much, this is what really struck me studying this and made me come to this conclusion. Notice how much Jonah emphasizes himself and his situation. In fact, if you're bored, go back and count I, me, and my. They're mentioned 25 times in this prayer. But you compare that to the references to God, to Lord, to you or your, only mentioned 16 times. So Jonah's prayer tends to be one long description about himself. Does that describe you in prayer? Does that describe me in worship? Like think about our modern worship lyrics. Out of 100 lyrics, we sing 90% of them about us, words that picture our lives from a human standpoint. And it seems like only 10% of the lyrics we like, oh yeah, I got to mention God in here. Let me throw him in for good measure. I wonder if the first century church heard our prayers as a generation or heard our, our modern worship music. And they, they would probably be tempted to think that in 2020, we are suffering the greatest trials of any generation or that we've had to endure the worst persecution of all times like the early church of the reformers did to advance the gospel. And I was just thinking about that this week. Like, like what does our worship sound like? And it's like faux suffering. We're like, Lord, I'm going to get through this storm. I'm going to get through this trial. You're with me in the fire. I can't get through this alone. And you say, like, well, what have you been going through? Like, my AC broke, man. Like, I'm just going through it. Like, I'm struggling. I'm suffering for the gospel. Um, I don't think so. Just look at William Tyndale. Like, like, you and I can thank Tyndale for our English translations. And yet Tyndale, in his ministry, was betrayed by someone he thought was a friend. He was imprisoned for a year and a half unjustly and then finally brought to trial for heresy. Eventually, he was condemned for heresy. He was strangled, and then he was burned at the stake. And his last prayer was not, Lord, that was unfair. His last prayer was, Lord, open the king of England's eyes. For simply believing the gospel, translating the Bible into English, his life was put to death. You and I don't hear about Christian martyrs who complain about their misfortune with their final breaths. On the contrary, their final words give God glory for counting them worthy to suffer on behalf of his name. And yet when we dig into it, a lot of our Western plight is centered around our ease and our comfort being interrupted or unrealistic expectations that are not fulfilled. Now, now, I'm not meaning to minimize the sheer terror of what Jonah's going through, of being swallowed alive by a sea creature. He's absolutely gone through something atrocious and difficult, and many of us have as well. I'm not, I'm not minimizing suffering or minimizing persecution or problems. But like Jonah, it's so easy in worship for, or prayer for us to emphasize our calamity, our problems. Someone says at the greeting, the greeting time, how you been, man? You're like, oh, man, I've been really rough, man. Thanks for praying. Just let you know, um, you can, you can uh, here, follow me on Twitter. I just need you to pray for me. You know, we, we, we are quick to share our plight uh, and our calamity instead of emphasizing God's character. Now, similar to that idea, number three, man-centered worship, man-centered prayer tends to celebrate the work of God over the nature of God. Now, certainly we want to celebrate the work of God, the work of God in Christ, in our salvation, on the cross, in his resurrection. Certainly we, do, we want to do that. But may we not prioritize his work above his nature. Does that make sense? So like his work flows from his nature. In other words, Jesus is good intrinsically, not just because Jesus died on the cross. Oh, Jesus died on the cross. That means he's good. No, he's good and his work flows out of his goodness. Does that make sense? So he's worthy of our praise, not just because he forgives our sin and because he's the source of all worth, uh, you know, because he's done good things, but because he's the source of all worth and honor and excellence. It's not just because he does good things that makes him good. He's good, therefore he does good things. Maybe you missed it, but in Jonah's prayer, nothing is mentioned about God's goodness, God's grace, God's mercy, God's kindness, God's justice, God's holiness, his power, his might, his worth, his greatness, his omniscience, his omnipresence. 
We don't hear about any of that until later in chapter 4, almost in a complaint. So once out of the belly of the fish, he is thankful that God saved him. I'm so thankful that you physically saved me, God. But if you go back and read his prayer, he's kind of given a bare minimum acknowledgement that God physically rescued him, but he's not glorying in the person of God, the character of God, the nature of God. If you read the rest of Psalm 18, where he kind of quotes, you'll see the nature and the character and the person of God listed, and that's why we cry out to you. And that's why we're so thankful, is because God himself is good enough. Jonah's not looking for the face of God, but for the hand of God. I'm thankful for the blessing, but can you just keep blessing me with blessings? Not just himself. And so I never want to merely pray and acknowledge what God has done at the expense of acknowledging who God is. What he has done flows out of who he is and not the other way around. So number four, man-centered worship, man-centered prayer tends to compare ourselves with others rather than giving God the glory. Now, you may have missed this, but Look again at verses 8 and 9. There's something under the, oh gosh, I can't, I got to keep doing it. There's something under the surface that um, we see here where we uh, notice Jonah's racism and contempt for those who are not of Israel. I got to stop with these puns. I got to look over my notes more. I didn't realize there were so many. And so he's praying a prayer, but he then references what could only be a backhanded jab at the mariners who just threw him overboard. Look again at verse 8. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. You guys remember last week? The sailors were all calling out to vain idols. And after Jonah shares the name of God with them, they seem to repent. They seem to make sacrifices and vows. And they pray for mercy from the one true God. But see... None of that's acknowledged or thanked here by Jonah. Like those who pay, he could have said this in verse 8, those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love, but thankfully I have the opportunity to take that steadfast love and proclaim it to them, and they're no longer calling upon vain idols. Thank you, Father, for counting it worthy for me to suffer so that those men could hear the name of God and call upon you and make sacrifice. He doesn't do that. It's almost as if he's saying, you know what, they pay regard to their vain idols, or they do, but I, I will sacrifice to you. They make empty vows, but I will actually complete what I vow because I'm one of God's chosen people. Salvation doesn't belong to their gods. Salvation belongs to my God. See, Jonah's focus is not solely on the glory of God, even in our suffering, but with comparing himself to the sinners around him. He's uninterested in extending God's glory. He wants to compare himself with the heathen and then feel better about himself. May we guard our hearts from doing the same. In fact, Jesus points this out in one of his parables. In Luke chapter 18, uh, we'll put it on the screen. Listen to the words of Jesus. He said, uh, it says, He also told them this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Here's the parable. Two men went up into the temple to pray one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee standing by himself prayed thus, another translation said prayed to himself or prayed by himself, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. And then he says, but the tax collector standing far off would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And then Jesus says, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For, who, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Now, follow me here, church. In reading this parable, what we just did, something fascinating always happens. When you and I read this parable from Jesus, every single one of us thinks this. We think, man, that Pharisee is a loser. I can't believe he did that. I've met people like him. In fact, I'm thinking of someone right now who's just like that Pharisee who prayed that. He's judgmental and he's, he's looking down on others. I can't believe that. I am so glad I'm not like the Pharisee 
in Jesus' parable. Wait a minute. And you and I literally fulfill the parable that Jesus just told. And does that make sense? Like you and I are never the Pharisee. We're always like, yeah, I'm like that tax collector. Like I can't believe that guy. You and I literally fulfill the words of Jesus. We are all the Pharisee. We pray and compare ourselves with others. We exalt and justify ourselves rather than humbling ourselves before a holy God. And in our worship and in our prayer, brothers, this should not be. Well, finally, number five, man-centered worship, man-centered prayer, well, and man-centered preaching, I could add this, will always call you to recommit to keeping our promises rather than trusting in his promises. Notice that Jonah, at the end of his prayer, makes a, a recommitment. I'm going to pay my vows. I'm going to make sacrifices. I'm going to do better. I'm going to try harder, Lord. How many times do we rededicate our lives or recommit our lives in prayer worship we say lord i know i messed up this time again but this time lord this time i'm gonna fix it this time i promise lord i swear (laughs) i remember getting saved about 11 times one summer when i was 13 years old i got saved over and over and i'm just gonna do this this isn't gonna stick i'm just gonna keep repenting and keep trying to keep listen rather than placing our hope and our own ability to keep our vows to god The gospel reminds us to come and die, to yield to the work of God in Christ, and to trust in his ability to keep his promises. So my salvation is not contingent upon my ability to keep myself saved. It's based upon his unswerving faithfulness and his unlimited power to keep his covenant with his people. So may we stop making empty promises and just start resting in the one who alone is able to do what he promised to do. I guess to sum all of this up, we could say that's man-centered prayer, but true gospel-centered prayer doesn't just take God into account and try to reflect on God in the midst of trials. No, it takes the trials into account as we consider the character and the nature of a good and just God who holds all things together in his hands for his glory and even for our good pleasure. Now, even though Jonah keeps emphasizing himself and he, he, I believe, gives a small nod towards God, yet in his mercy, what does God do? God could have just said, you know, I'm done. (laughs) Just touch the fish, the fish swallow, you know, just digest them, and that's it, end of Jonah. Yet in his mercy, God causes the fish to expel the prophet. One person jokingly said, Jonah's prayer was so bad, the the fish got sick. Now, that's not true, that's not sick. Jonah needed to first experience the undeserved mercy and grace of God before the Ninevites did. Follow me there. Perhaps there was repentance in this prayer, and Jonah did come to his senses, and he cried out to the Lord with the right heart. And in the end, when we repent, God often will relent from his discipline and turn in favor towards his penitent children. Not that he changes, but as our hearts change, his nature stays the same and consistent with our repentance. But I think Jonah's return to shore here was not a result necessarily of fervency, but another display of God's grace toward an undeserving, rebellious sinner. Now, as we close, may we consider Jesus. May we consider Jesus this morning. Jesus was a true and better Jonah. Jesus cried out also to address and acknowledge God in his own distress as the waves of suffering began to threaten him. Jesus himself entered into the depths of death. He was cast into the deep, not because of his own sin, but because of Adam's. It wasn't waves or billows that surrounded him. It was the deluge of wrath poured out by the Father upon lawless disobedience. Again, not his own, but the sin of the world. And Jesus was driven away from the presence of the Father. And Jesus cried out, why have you forsaken me? And as he did that, the curtain of the holy temple was torn into from top to bottom, representing now full access to the Father, being provided for, even as his own life ebbed away. Jesus never lifted his soul to a vain idol. Jesus gave up his life willingly to offer all who would believe the hope of steadfast love and eternal life. Jesus didn't offer a sacrifice. Jesus became the sacrifice, the spotless lamb who was the propitiation for our sin. Where Jonah made an empty promise to pay back what he owed, Jesus paid the full price for our redemption. Jesus' name itself means God is salvation. Salvation indeed belongs to the Lord. And though he descended into death 
On the third day, we as his followers, we celebrate the fact that he rose again victoriously and conquered sin and death forever. So he is worthy of our praise. He's worthy of our worship. He's worthy of our penitent cries for mercy. And the writer of Hebrews understood this. He understood that it is through Jesus, not through our fervent prayers. Listen, it's through Jesus, not through our perfect religious or spirituality, our religious you know, upbringing or our religious duties. It is through Jesus, not through the passion of our singing or the passion of our words or the old English that we pepper into our penitent prayers. No, it is through Jesus that we offer up prayers and praise. Not through the condition of our hearts, not through our zeal, not through our energy, not with the best worship band that the church can ever produce. It is through Jesus. And the writer of Hebrews says this in Hebrews 13, 15. We close and conclude with this. He says, through him, through Jesus, let us then continually offer a sacrifice of praise to God that is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. May we this morning understand that prayer is an honest admission of our desperate condition as we rest in who we are in Christ, that we're his beloved, that we're adopted in, and that we now have access to the Father through the one Spirit. Amen? Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you this morning that whether Jonah's prayer is spot on or maybe a bit superficial, we thank you this morning that you heard his prayer and that in mercy you allowed the fish to expel him. And that as we'll see in the coming um, studies, that Jonah went in obedience to complete the work that you had called him to originally do. We thank you that ultimately that is found and, and realized in the personal work of Christ who came to an unrepentant uh, people, a people who were running from him wayward, um, violent and desperate. And the plan for Nineveh, the plan for the world has always been one man. We thank you, Jesus, that you came from heaven to earth and you bore our sin. You took our place. This morning we, through Jesus, can offer up prayer, not through our fervency, not through being perfectly desiring. Maybe even this morning we lack desire to even pray. We lack the words. We thank you that through Jesus we have one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. This morning it's through him that we offer continually this sacrifice of praise and prayer. We love you, Lord. We thank you for what you've accomplished through the cross, through your resurrection power. This morning may your spirit cause us to not pray or worship in a man-centered way, but in a way that is pleasing to you, gospel-centered way. We commit this time to you. We love you. We ask, Lord, that we would yield to you and you'd work in a supernatural way as you transform our hearts into the image of Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to our podcast. Shoreline Church meets every Sunday at 10 a.m. at the Freedom Elementary School on State Road 64. You can get more content and more information by visiting thisisshoreline.com. If you have any questions or any prayer needs, please don't hesitate to email us at info at calvaryshoreline.com. God bless you.